to your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, Pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are continuing 2 Samuel 11 through 15 this past week. And uh, as you can see, things are going poorly and getting worse in the life of David and uh, mm-hmm. all that's going on uh, in the kingdom of Israel itself. Yeah, yeah. it's like I kind of started it and was like, well, David, it's it's been great. I <laughs> really loved you ride, when you were for doing the right thing and now we are going to see the mess of you which i mean it's a reminder that like these people we put on pedestals cannot stay there because we cannot worship them we can see how god works in and through their individual lives and we know that david is man after god's own heart but like our example is christ and he is the one that we look to who did this all perfectly yep yeah there is no human hero other than jesus at the end of the story Mm -hmm. um and so in any moments that David is great, it's because he trusts in the Lord anyway. So um, it's not just his own power. And so uh, we get the pretty famous uh, David and Bathsheba story. And uh, I just want to sing the Leonard Cohen song in my head right now. But um, <laughs> yeah, and and it's interesting, uh, once again, to compare where the Chronicler kind of leaves the story out and where he does and what the Chronicler will move on to versus Second uh, Samuel. But uh, let's just deal with Second Samuel today. Um, and yeah, it's, so I think we need to address how this story has maybe been mistold in the past. Yeah, uh, I, I even ran across some commentaries this week dealing with um, Bathsheba, like being culpable, and maybe if she wasn't so flaunting out on the roof, and she had to known the king might have been out there, therefore she was doing this. But like, okay, all of that is reading into the story, and and the way that the writer of of, of Samuel and the way that Nathan confronts the, the sin, all of it. Bathsheba has never been presented as the one to blame. And if anything, the storyteller is making sure that she's not presented that way. Mm-hmm. It's always important to remember the details. Bathsheba wasn't necessarily on a roof. We don't get that detail. We get that David goes out on a roof and that he sees Bathsheba from the roof. Uh, but she could have been in a window in her own place. Who knows? And not only that, but she's also presented as um, cleansing herself, likely uh, tied into um, her weekly menstruation that she had to kind of take a bath after that was over. Um, so she's... She's presented as one who is obeying the Torah in this moment and, and presented as that. And so any sort of hint that she could have been presented as anything other than that, it's just not in the text at all. And so, um, yeah, it is, it is, David is the culpable one in every step of this situation. Right. And not only this, but David summons her. And when you are summoned by a king, you don't have a choice nope. as to if you're going to go or not. And we don't actually know when he summoned her, if she understood what was going to happen. But um, I would I would go so far to say that this is much less adultery and much more rape, because yeah. I don't I don't believe that Bathsheba had a choice in her situation with David. And, and no and, and no out in terms of David not knowing uh, that she was married or anything. We know she was. Like, he's told that. Like, that, that is Bathsheba, Uriah, one of your own men, one of your, your mighty men's wife. And so, um, yeah, every step of the storytelling is that David screws up and, and disobeys God royally. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think what happened is that David got comfortable. You know, I mean, it says here that the kings were out to battle and David stayed back. So, first of all, David should have been out fighting with his troops. Yeah. Uh, but second of all, he stayed back and he became comfortable. He realized he could have what he wanted. He was king. And then he was no longer desperate for God or hungry for holiness or righteousness because he had other things to fill his time or energy or just to kind of like numb his love for the Lord. And so um, 
he, he wasn't desperate. And I also don't think he woke up that morning thinking like, I'm going to commit sexual sin and then kill one of my most loyal warriors. It's a slippery slope that I think all of us who, if we are living in America, are fairly comfortable in and of itself. But like, we all need to be careful about our comfort and what kind of doors of sin that can open for us. Yeah, and, and we should remember, like, this isn't this isn't the starting point. Like, we've watched multiple lessons where, yeah, I mean, D- David should have been at war, and David has had these multiple wives, and and some of his um, troubles with women, like, like he, I don't know how to say it best about David, but um, yeah, like. He, he even even taking the multiple wives is what a king wasn't supposed to do, and so like David has his own struggles. This isn't the starting point, but it, there are a whole lot of smaller things that have really led uh, to this moment. Um, and Bathsheba gets pregnant. Uh, David immediately tries to cover his tracks. Uh, at first, he's trying to get Uriah to to sleep with Bathsheba so that if she gets if she, he can say that Uriah got her pregnant and David wasn't part of it. Um, but Uriah is presented as a stand-up guy too, that he's trying to obey the law. He doesn't necessarily want to sleep with his wife because of that. He's not wanting to sleep in comfort. Like he's willing to, to sleep on the ground basically like his own soldiers. And so both Bathsheba and Uriah are presented as positive. And then David uh, basically hands Uriah a letter with his own death sentence on it to give to Joab uh, that will ultimately lead to Uriah's death uh, in battle. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. It's, it's, it's a pretty tawdry tale of David doing pretty awful things to, mm-hmm. to get what he wants. He just wants more and he, whatever he desires, he goes after in this moment. And so that's, that's, that's a sin that David will struggle with and even more his son. Yeah. So uh, we get a prophet show up who, um, it calls out the sin and the sin really is theft. Like that is the, the, the microcosm story, the, the coveting, mm-hmm. the wanting more. Um, and I think the chronicler will pick up on that, that much more, but, um, I, I kind of loved <laughs> David's ignorance on both this story and the other story we had to read this past week where it's like, uh, so he just doesn't get what the parables after. And it's like, dude, like Nathan's like, it's you, you're the, you're the bad <laughs> guy in the story. Um, but it, it's sometimes funny because, uh, whenever, a prophet tells you a parable, you should probably uh, pay attention and think that you might be the bad part of the story. Um, but there's curses. His na- household is going to be uh, in chaos. Yeah. Um, his neighbor, which we'll, we will find out is his son, uh, will sleep with David's wives. But we also see repentance from David. And so this is where David is unlike other kings that we have seen and will mm-hmm. see, um, is that he does seem to, to have this sort of like moment where it's like, I screw up. And we certainly see that in Psalm 51 too. But um, this, this moment of saying, you know what, I, you're right. I, I am to blame and I should surely die. Yeah. And you know, the responsibility of David in leadership is heavy. His sin here is going to end up impacting his entire kingdom. And there will be a lot of death because of David's sin here. And so while not all of us are are in that sort of position, it's good for us to remember that there is no sin that you can commit, whether in public or in private, that will not infect affect those around you, whether it's your family or your church or your life group or whatever. Um, our choices have a ripple effect wherever we are and in whatever we do. Yep. And so uh, we get to this next story where um, David, David's child that the, 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 that's pregnant, Bathsheba, um, she has this baby, but the, the story's rough uh, around this kid dying. And it, it, I, I don't know how, how comfortable or how much I, I like it yeah. <laughs> that in some ways God seems to punish David by the killing of this child. And 
once again, I, I don't, there's ways that God's ways are higher than my ways. There's ways that his purposes are higher than my purposes. I don't know if God can foresee the trajectory of what would happen with this kid or anything like that. I, I don't know. Um, but on some level I got to trust and, um, and maybe there's some historic telling of, of this kid died right after this. And therefore, uh, the interpreter of Samuel reads it as God's punishment. It's, it's hard because it doesn't, it, it, it's, it's just more complicated than that. But, um, yeah, there's, there's some uncomfortable ability here. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as believers and followers of God and of Christ in this, there's kind of a tension we have to walk that I think Chris said really perfectly at the end of the day, there's times where we just have to say like, God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust you because I know that your word says you're good and it's hard for me to see your goodness in here, but it doesn't mean that you aren't good. And so we could try to come up with answers and solutions or platitudes, but it's okay also to live in a tension of trusting God's goodness, even when it doesn't appear good. Yeah. And we're followed up with the, the death of the child that came out of wedlock to the birth of the first child in wedlock with Bathsheba, and that's Solomon, who uh, we will see as the storyline goes, that becomes the king. And so um, he's also named Jedediah. Random trivia question for you, but um, we do find out that, that there's both names. And um, But the storyteller just seems to want to introduce us to the fact that Solomon was born here. And then uh, the, the battle that had started uh, right before the Bathsheba story uh, comes to sort of an end with Joab here. And, uh, and David goes out there uh, to, to help finish the battle, to, to go out and, yeah, to take the city. Yeah. And so. then we get another downward spiral in the story where Nathan's prophecies are starting to come true. And this is a story, is pretty, there's not even much interpretation that needs to happen initially. It's rape. It's uh, Amnon is calculated in his rape here it's not even this is different than that than david sometimes seeing or whatever seeing Bathsheba on the roof this is like let me make a plan i know what i want this is what's going to happen and um and and yeah it's awful it's an awful part of the story um and if you're reading your esv you're going to get a little bit of a footnote um but uh, in the sentence that said when king david heard all these things he was very angry and the footnote should point out that um two of the other main Old Testament um, collections that we have uh, already do, the, either add the interpretation or the interpretation was originally part of the text that says, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. And so at some point in their history, there's definitely the the pinpointing of David not doing anything and showing favoritism is David's biggest problem in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Amnon did something terrible. Absolutely. But David, this is also showing David's problem. Uh, with his kids, with his parenting, maybe maybe David, in his own sin, uh, because of Bathsheba, feels like he can't. He has no right. grounds to speak on, uh, whatever it may be. Yeah. yeah, I just think God's heart is with the weak and the vulnerable. And oftentimes back, especially in this culture, women fall into this category. And here we have David, the king, who um, is meant to rule with justice and equity, neglecting the weak and the vulnerable, taking advantage of them because he is afraid of addressing a situation or um, he's playing favorites with his firstborn son. And we will see how everything falls apart because of this. Like, Gosh, like holiness from God and the structure and the laws he gives us are for our good. And when we don't follow them, things fall apart. Yeah. 
and there is grief and regret and it just gets, it gets progressively worse. Yes. I mean, there's consequences for sin. Yes. David is a man after God's own heart. As you read in this week, he has tremendous prayers, but at the same time, there's consequences for sin. Um, and so, yeah, a couple of years go by and, uh, it seems like Amnon's never really dealt with, uh, related to what he did. And so Absalom probably has this festering anger for his brother and, uh, comes up with his own plan, uh, to have Amnon show up at this sheep shearing festival or whatever it is. And, uh, and, and brings about death for Amnon. And there's some weird communication that goes back to David, David finds out that he thinks all of his sons are dead, but ultimately he gets told that it's only Amnon, uh, but he grieves over it all, understandably. He mourns, but um, it's a question of what David really is mourning for. Is he mourning over the sin? Is he mourning over the loss? Is it What, what is the, the driving point of his grief in this moment? Yeah, and I wonder if he's mourning because had he done the right thing, this could have been prevented. But because David did not, do the right thing when it came to Amnon raping Tamar, his son Absalom took it in his hand. And so he's just losing family members because of sin. Yeah. And there's a complicated question of like the, the law is pretty clear and, and adulterer. Anybody that steals another man's wife um, or in the case of rape, which uh, I think would have applied to Tamar here. Um, the penalty is death. Yeah. And so like David, should die for what he did and and uh um uh his son should die amnon should die for what he did but we don't necessarily see that in the storyline we see death and we see the death of uriah which is already a, a weird substitute for it and mm-hmm. then we see the death in the in the child that got born um but um yeah. it's interesting that the law doesn't seem to be played out yet uh, in israel and i'm just curious how what the what the role of the Torah is in the kingdom of, of David right now. Yeah. And I think there's kind of like a snarky parallel that's actually put in that section where um, Absalom, when he talks to Tamar after she's been raped, says, don't take it to heart. You know, and then you have Jonadab, this crafty guy who got Amnon to rape Tamar, go to David and be like, oh, don't take Amnon set to heart. I think this idea of taking to heart um, just shows that like maybe lack of empathy or lack of willing to consider other circumstances yeah. saying, well, you shouldn't feel bad about that. But anyway. Yeah. And so uh, Absalom is on the run. Uh, maybe he's worried that David's going to uh, kill him or, or punish him for what he's done. And um, and ultimately, uh, David is at least a little bit sad over the loss of Absalom as well. But uh, David, once again, gets tricked by a parable, uh, this old, uh, this, this, um, this parable, Joab commissions basically this woman to have this parable, um, and David doesn't get it. But ultimately, David kind of comes to terms with, yes, I, sh- I should bring Absalom back home. And and Absalom returns home, uh, but it seems like he's still getting the cold shoulder from his dad. That he comes home, but his dad still won't speak to him. And so he starts burning Joab's fields, which I'm sure Joab's kind of ticked about. Um, and they sort of work out that David and Absalom see each other. Maybe there's maybe it's just formality. Maybe there is some level of forgiveness. It's hard to know. Um, we we just see sort of Absalom prostrate himself. We see David kiss him, but it it doesn't seem like they've actually dealt with anything. Yeah, and you know, th- I, it just makes me kind of think back to this covenant that God gave David, which is like, I will make your family a dynasty and a kingdom. And then David's kind of like, I wonder if he's just kind of watching it like fall through his fingers as his children keep dying or falling apart, or there's relational strife within his family. And I wonder if he just so badly wants to hold on to that promise that he's willing to overlook sin, which God says, like, God's not going to do that. Um, 
but I just, yeah, I wonder how he's seeing all of that play out within his understanding of, of, and it's a limited understanding of God's covenant with him. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and so Absalom hatches his own plan uh, in the midst of this, where um, this almost feels like a church split one-on-one kind of strategy here. Um, it's sort of the, the the lower leader in Absalom, and he's starting to gain a collection of followers, and he kind of gains them by saying, like, look, like, the king's not appointing the judge to actually deal with this. And um, he, so he's not so great at his job and you should just trust in me. And, and he sort of sets up this sort of um, collection of people that he's sort of uh, gaining influence in and eventually uh, kind of sets off on his own and says, okay, I'm going to set up my own shop um, and I'm going to be king to the South. And that's exactly what happened. And um, he sets it up in Hebron, which is going back to the David story earlier. That's where David was king over Judah uh, when Ishbosheth was still king of the mm-hmm. top. So I think the storyteller is trying to start start us up again on this almost re- maybe actually a reversal of the story uh, where he's going to end up in in fleeing again. Yeah, and so, so he does. Then, yeah, flee. He ends up on the run. He's got he's got people on his side. He's got people that are on his son's side, um, and it's starting to tear the kingdom apart. Yeah. So again, we're seeing the ripple effect, which is huge for David because he's king, but of his sin or his unwillingness to deal with other sin, yep. even within his own family. All right, uh, so we're still in Corinth in the New Testament. So let's jump over there. And um, Paul's still dealing with this sense of division in the church. And, and as I said, he's going to deal with this this whole letter. But um, there's definitely some division, and, and it seems like the people have this sort of um, um, prideful judging of other people. Like they're they're the insiders, and they have the best knowledge, and they're the, they're sort of the higher ups. Um, and and Paul has to deal with this. Paul Paul points out that he himself is under Jesus, that this position is still lower than Jesus, but that he has the sort of both father and other ways that he's sort of over them as the church. He's sort of defending his apostleship. Um, but then he points out, like, you guys think you guys have everything, but but w- if we are apostles and we're sort of the the higher ups than you, look at our lives where we, we, we've been beaten. We have very little. We're homeless. We're a spectacle to those in the watching world. Like, we are the example that you should be setting and that, that we are the ones you should be listening to. We are the ones that um, are, are setting the pace for you. That, that there's other people that might give you great advice or, um, or, or guide you a little bit, but we, and particularly him, Paul, is like a father to them um, and trying to point out kind of the, the how to live, how, how, to, how, to, how they should rightly judge what the world's really like. Yeah. I think the the part from this passage that stuck out to me the most is Paul talking about having guides versus fathers in Christ. And I just, you know, Paul says, imitate me. I am your father. You know, he lived among them for a long time. And sometimes we will take these Christian authors or speakers and put them on these pedestals and want to imitate our life after them. And I guess, I mean, I guess that's okay. But you know what we don't see is we don't see what they look like when they're not on the stage and they're not teaching. And yet we have these people in our own church community who really can be the spiritual fathers or the spiritual mothers to look to, to see how they live their life and imitate them in that way. But understand the difference between someone who's distant and separate from you teaching you about Christ versus someone in your actual present life living it out. Yeah. And, and, I mean, as a as a tangent application, t- still tied into that. Um, there's there's a growing sense of rogue Christian leaders, and that are not under an authority of a church mm-hmm. where there's no um, a heavy level of watching my life, where there's no accountability, all that kind of stuff. And so, um, as you listen to Christian re- authors and Christian leaders, like 
that's an important characteristic that I think is worth it to look for of going, all right, are, are they within the bounds of a, of a healthy church that has levels of accountability and stuff like that? Or are they going rogue? Are they de-churching in such a way that they can do whatever they want, they can live however they want, as long as they say the right things and write the right things, that, that I'm just going to listen to them. And it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, important, it's important distinction. Yeah. Or even just pursuing a public platform of influence when they're not sharing those gifts within their own local yeah, church. Of course. So, uh, Paul will move on to, uh, and he'll do this a few times to talk about sexual immorality. Uh, this is like and, our theme for this podcast because yeah. of David and Bathsheba, and then we'll hit it a bunch more times in Corinthians. Yeah, there's a lot of sexual immorality going on <laughs> uh, in the Bible, and that happens. And so, um, this sort of feels like a little bit to me a counter swing from the previous chapter. So, David's like, look, you guys are judging everybody. You need to rightfully um, judge, which. Um, and now he's sort of uh, uh, dealing with okay, and there's a way to rightfully judge. Like let's let's deal with that. Like I know you were overjudging uh, in chapter four, but let's talk about rightful judging. And there's something going on in your own church that David certainly has heard about uh, that that needs to be dealt with um, as well. And so uh, it's important to remember as we talk about sexuality, like this is the city of Aphrodite. Zeus and Aphrodite, or not Zeus, uh, um, Poseidon and Aphrodite are the gods of the city. And so uh, sexuality is huge for the city in terms of worship, in terms of culture, in terms of all those kind of things. And so um, there there was tied into worship, uh, there was marriage rituals related to uh, prostitution, homosexuality, all sorts of stuff that were going on in the city. And so... um, it's it's no small note for David to, or for Paul to start this and say, "Hey, even the pagans in your city, look at what you guys are doing and and what this man is doing, and say that's not okay. That's not right. Yeah, uh, in a city that's probably most things are permissible. Um, that that for them to look on and go, hey, this is really wrong. Um, how how dare the church be okay with it? Um, and and in, not only that, but Paul points out that they're proud of it. So maybe maybe they've overarched um, or, or shot a little too far on what grace looks like in such a way that it's like, look, God's God's forgiven us of, of all of our sins, so we could just do whatever we want. Uh, and uh, and and maybe Paul's bringing them back in and teaching them, look. I think there's an important part of this process that, that gets played out with this man where he instructs them saying, look, you need to grieve over the sin. Mm-hmm. It should sadden you that, that sin is, is happening, particularly in the church. And in this sort of removal uh, kind of conversation of this of this man from your group, the, the goal, the stated goal, it sounds like from Paul is saying like, so that he may come to repentance and ultimately be saved. Mm-hmm. And so um, the... the it, Sometimes I, I hear discipline stories and it's like they were out to get that person. It's like, no, that's not how Paul's trying to, trying to deal with this. It's like, ah, oh, be sad about this and, and, and whatever it may take. And maybe it'll even take removal from fellowship to bring about repentance. Let's do it. Yeah. And so it's, it's important. And, and, um, and, and for us to see that. And I think the goal here is for Paul to say like, look, we can't be laissez-faire around sin in the church. That if a brother or sister is walking in sin, like, We've got to address it, but within the church, he's pretty clear. Like our job's not to be the police of all of Corinth and sexuality those matters. But when it comes to the church, when it comes to our code of conduct, we got to be different. We're we're called to be different. We're called to be set aside. We're called holy. All those words, And, and so how we live has to look differently than the city. And for Corinth. That's particularly around sexuality, and it'll be about food and some other stuff later. But where the church in Corinth and where the culture in Corinth is probably at its biggest rub is particularly around sexuality. 
Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting that Paul in this is is referencing and talking about this idea of cleansing and restoring the temple or celebrating the the Passover and um you know, in Passover, you cl- you cleanse your home from leaven, which oftentimes represents sin, right? And so we just saw in David's life that sin really, it's like a yeast and it continues to grow um, and cause more and more destruction. So Paul is saying here, like this kind of sin that you are experiencing in your church is also like leaven. And if you don't take care of it within your church, it's going to grow and become worse and worse and worse. And I think the heart of it is that, that the grace, this scandalous grace we have from God gives us power, but it is not permission is not the empowerment for sin. It does not permit us to sin, but it gives us power for holiness. So where the gospel is at work in our lives, holiness will result. And yes, it is a process, but the end result of being transformed by the grace of God is is holiness and purity, not complete license to do whatever we want. Yeah. And, yeah. And what does it look like to, to remove the man? What does it look like uh, to send Act Matthew 18, where it's like, treat him as an outsider or a Gentile? Like, Paul doesn't give us a lot of those details. And so churches are a little bit at wisdom to, to think about how to apply some of the details of it. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's some removal of fellowship or uh, the benefits that come from fellowship within the church that, that should be happening in such a way that would cause this man to think, okay, what's worth more? This sin with my mother-in-law or, or stepmom um, or, uh, the, the, the community I had with, with, with other believers yeah. and brothers and sisters of Christ. And like that, that's what, that's what the removal of fellowship is supposed to sort of play out in his brain of which one do I really want? Yeah. Um, yeah. And just as a side note, all of this kind of stuff in modern day should take place under the guidance of eldership itself yeah, of course. within the church. Yeah. And so, uh, but then we get into the conversation of lawsuits. Uh, I kind of love Paul's rationale here. He kind of points to the future of going, look, in the end, like we as the church reigning with Jesus will be the ones who ultimately judge over all that is true and right and good with the wisdom that comes from God. And so that's the case. Why wouldn't we enact some of that now? Why would we go to outsiders who don't have the wisdom of God and and trust in their discernment over what's right and wrong in a situation. And so um, he kind of pushes to go, okay, let's maybe we should be able to work these things out within the confines of the church and not cause more division and escalate to more sort of um, retribution that the world's after. And if anything, he actually tips his hat a little bit and says like, maybe we would even absorb the wounds that have been inflicted on us, that we would be willing to suffer to even not, to, to not have this happen, uh, to not have these, these, these retri- retribution moments. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, it looks, this is practically living out what we believe about God's sovereignty and justice and righteous over everything. When we follow the example of Jesus, we endure suffering because Christ suffered for us Jesus wanted to be unified with his sinful, broken people more in these moments than he wanted his own justice. And because of that, we have a way to salvation. And so let's walk in the steps of Christ and seek union with one another over our own justification or getting what we want. Yep. Uh, and and then Paul sort of in this 
conversation around don't be like the world, he kind of points out like, look, this is the way that many of you used to live. You mm-hmm. used to live like the world, but it's not who you are anymore. Yeah. And so when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to taking people to courtroom, when it comes to judging others, like you have to remember that you've been washed and sanctified and justified from those things. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like a throwback reminder to what those first three chapters of First Corinthians were about. Like, don't forget. Your wisdom is from God and you have the mind of Christ. You are washed, sanctified, and justified. You are not bound to doing these things that the world does any longer. Yeah. It's really empowering. But in your freedom, in, in that justification, in, in sort of setting up, let's remember, like, not everything goes. And so, uh, yeah. particularly on the issue of, of sexuality, like, it is the, the biggest problem it seems like for the church and uh, i love how eugene sort of rephrased that the stomach sentence of first you eat to live and then you live to eat that um that paul's sort of making that statement like yes like your body will die i understand that but um you were not meant to be gluttonous in that problem like Corinth had gluttony problem, whether it was food, whether it was sexuality. And Paul wants to tackle, tackle that subject. And, and not only that, not only Corinth had a problem, the larger Greek kind of question, when your body is disposable, which is sort of the Greek idea, the Greek philosophy, when your body is sort of that way, it's a question of like, um, the, the Epicureans would say, well, if our body doesn't matter, we could do whatever we want with it. We can eat, we can drink, we could be merry. Who cares? Tomorrow we die. And, and the Stoics said, well, if the body is, doesn't matter, then we need to do everything to make sure it's not a hindrance to our spirituality. And so they would discipline their bodies uh, in other ways. And so Paul's going to deal with that to be like, no, no, no. Like se- sexuality is okay. And he's going to unpack that even more in chapter seven. But, um, but at the same time, like you, you need to remember like, um, uh, there's still ways that God has designed. There's a sacredness to our sexuality. And, and he gets into that of going, look, we have a union with Christ now. Like the huge theological idea that we are united with Christ. And then he points to, and, and in marriage, in sexuality, well, let's talk about sex. In sex itself, there's a union between two things, that, between a man and a woman. And, and in so doing, um, that that if we're mixing those two, the sacredness of our union with Christ and our sacredness with our union through sex, that that if we're mixing those that are outside the bounds of God's design for that, which which I think we see right from Genesis uh, two, um, that that is designed within marriage, not designed within prostitutes and temple worship and uh, whatever else was going on in Corinth, that that we're we're sort of destroying the sacredness of our union with Christ by bringing that into this also sacred union with with a spouse, and, and it's just messing those things up. Mm-hmm. And Sarah and I had a long conversation about this, but but just the the complication of sometimes we talk about sex in the church as like rules and things you're not supposed to do and things you're supposed to do. And, 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 and sometimes we undersell the sacredness that, that sex is, which, cause I think Paul does that too, where he's like, look, the sins of sexuality are different than the sins of the world and our sins, other sins, because, um, because it is this sacred kind of thing, uh, around two people, um, kind of being joined together, being, being brought together in this one flesh union. And so, um, it has a, a spiritual component it has a deeper component to it than if I go out and slander someone. And, and so, um, yes, that might damage the image of God and how I slander someone, but it's also not bringing two people together in a bond that God ultimately designs to be 
permanent until death. And so, um, yeah, there's there's definitely a whole lot of uniqueness um, yeah, to what so he's tackling. I think where we maybe have gotten it wrong here to generalize in like modern church culture is that we do the right thing by saying flee sexual temptation, uh, but we don't explain the why. We don't explain the heart. We don't remind people that your sexual relationship was designed by God, created by God to tell a gospel story. Mm-hmm. And even your actual experience of sex is an act of worship designed by God as a picture of the union of Christ and the church. And we'll talk about this more when we get to Ephesians, but understand that he's not just saying flee sexual temptation because he said so, but there is a gospel, true spiritual reason why this is happening. So I know this is a struggle. It's a struggle if you're single. It's a struggle if you're married with all of um, the access to pornography and other things around there. And so step back for a minute, explore and think a little bit further on the gospel story that your marriage or your um, or your ab- abstention from sex outside of marriage is telling and the way that that makes us so unique in this world right now that um, is accepting of sex kind of in any way or in whatever kind of context. We are a light to the world and we are telling the story of Christ and his church through choosing sexual purity. And I'm not saying it's easy, mm-hmm. but understand the why behind it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important in, in how we tell the story with our lives and how we tell a countercultural story with our lives matters. And that's, I think that's what Paul's after here in the city that is telling one story around sex and for him to go, okay, you as God's people have to tell a different story around sex and, and what sex is and what sex is supposed to represent and the mystery of, of all that that gets revealed uh, in Christ. And so, yeah, w- we will deal with it a little more in Ephesians, but um, it's such a huge concept uh, as we unpack this letter uh, to, to understand what Paul's really driving at and mm-hmm. not just saying, so stop it. He, he's saying, look, like, Let's talk about the union of Christ when we talk about the yeah. flesh union. And so um, he takes a much bigger picture there. Yeah. So Psalm 51, uh, which uh, maybe you noticed, you actually read this about 20 weeks ago. Uh, then so uh, for whatever reason, there's a typo uh, or maybe uh, God ordained just that we really need to repent a lot and read through it. But uh, Psalm 51, again, is what we're at. And this is probably better timed uh, since this is probably written right around this moment in the storyline uh, that that David has this sort of moment of, of owning uh, his sin, owning what he did, um, and, and saying against you, you God, I, I totally messed up. Yeah. Yeah. I really like how I like the use of, of I in this Psalm, David really, I mean, anytime he's talking about his sin, he is taking full responsibility. I was conceived. It is I who have sinned. And then he also reflects on, on God and who God is. It's not God you let, he's not blaming God for anything, but he's reflecting on God's steadfast love, God's abundant mercy, God's blameless judgment. David is seeing who he is as a sinner and broken man in relation to this holy and perfect God. Yeah. And I always love this Psalm, but there's a little bit of it that like I'm struggling with. And, and, and that is like, Yes, David is owning his own sin before God, which is awesome. But I feel like there's a disconnect between David owning his sin before God and that and that reconciliation, that sort of thing being played out in him owning it with the people that he's totally sinned also uh, towards. Yeah. So um, yeah. there's no like owning it with Bathsheba. There's no real working towards reconciliation with his kids and disciplining his kids related to their own sins. Like all that doesn't quite play out. And so I'm, I'm just a little bit curious about that. But, um, but at the same time, David does rightfully connect 
his own sin with even even Jerusalem itself. Like he is the king, and so his mess ups affect the kingdom. and And his his statement about restoration and restoring Jerusalem itself in the end, I think, is really important too. That he he sort of has made the mental note to say, like, look, my mess up has caused havoc in the kingdom itself. Yeah. And then Psalm 63, uh, which is a song, uh, we have a whole song for that here at Resonate uh, that gets stuck in my head. But um, David here is just acknowledging he's about to be in the wilderness again. He's on the run again. And he's sort of acknowledging, look, God, you, you're it. More than water, more than life itself, like your love is, is better than those things. So as those things are being stripped away from David, he, he's he's still stating, God, you are still enough for me. Yeah, I think so often when we are are stuck in times of suffering, our end goal is to get out of that suffering, whether it's getting a better job so you can pay your bills better or getting over a sickness issue or whatever kind of thing. Our end goal is for the suffering to stop. But for David, he's like, my goal is your presence. I'm not satisfied when I get out of the wilderness or when my life isn't being destroyed, but I am satisfied in your presence. And you know what? We all know what it is to be thirsty. Do you feel this for God? We know what it's like to be satisfied. Do you feel this from God? It's it's a really good opportunity to reflect on where our hope is. Yeah, definitely. So next week, Old Testament, New Testament. Yeah. Okay. So Old Testament. So I referenced this a little bit earlier, but you know, the authors of Samuel and Chronicles were so clear to talk about how David ruled with equity and justice. And yet we see David starting to neglect those characteristics and how he ruled, or at least how he led his own family. So pay attention to what happens when David begins to rule with inequity and he doesn't fight for justice uh, or pay attention for what you continue to see in that. Um, and in the New Testament, we're going to read passages next week in 1 Corinthians that we pull lots of small verses from to illustrate points, whether it's about marriage and singleness or knowledge puffing up and love building up or even disciplining our bodies. So my encouragement to you is to read it as a whole big picture. What do all of these passages say in whole and how are they all supporting Paul's primary argument? And what is that argument here? So look at it in, the, in kind of like the big picture rather than the, the little picture. And for me, uh, the soap opera of David's life is going to continue to play out quite a bit and it's going to keep getting worse. But try to imagine yourself in history in the midst of this too. And I think it it becomes a little bit more um, almost clear or understandable exactly what's going on. Like you have a whole divided kingdom, but then the kingdom's going to try to start getting back together. But so who's in charge? Do we go back to David? Do we honor David? Does does David treat these people that rebelled against him well or not? Like, I, I think that helps to, to sort of imagine a, a kingdom that has like fallen apart and now getting restored with the king who um, came before the usurper. And so um, I think we'll understand, we'll understand Joab's actions in the midst of that a little bit more as well. So, um, and then New Testament. Paul's going to give the church a lot of very particular instructions, but um, I, I think I think it's important too to step back at times and, and and almost as Sarah said, like what is the principle Paul's really after? Like what is the guiding rule that's helping him um, kind of give advice? There's there's almost a, a lot of advice given by David where where it's it's in this situation you should probably do this, in this situation you should probably do this, but there's a principle that seems to be guiding him, and the struggles in Corinth aren't the same as ours. So even even those applications around food around sex are, are all over the place. So what what would it be for Paul to write to our church based upon those principles? Uh, what what might things be things he addresses uh, in the midst of that? I think it's a good question to ask as you read. Yeah. So that's it for this week. Thanks, Thanks y'all. everybody.